Who are you going to vote for this Tuesday? Don't answer that. This is a little loud. Does it sound loud out there? Okay. I'll give you a minute here. Thank you. All right. So in... Um, in times past, in our country, it was actually common for just about every church to give an election sermon on the day when voting occurred. So even like 100 years before the Declaration of Independence, this was going on regularly in our country. The reason for that is they understood the importance of integrating faith and civics or the political system or what's going on in the world at large. And so um, what we're doing this morning is to kind of continue in that tradition. Let me just give you a little bit of an explanation of what that looks like. In some senses, this is kind of like a State of the Union address in that you're really dealing with what's going on in our country and the things that are most urgent on our minds uh, at the moment. What this is not is it's not an endorsement of a candidate. So let me be really clear what I mean here. You need to follow your conscience in who you're going to vote for uh, in our election. At the same time, I'm not going to um, be really careful not to mention names and try to couch everything in terms that you can't really tell what I'm saying. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you what my thoughts are. When I say, here's my interpretation of things personally, that's for you to take it or leave it. When we're talking about what Scripture says, those are things that God says and we need to pay attention to. This is also not going to be an exhaustive presentation of everything that goes into Christian voting. I'm not trying to do that. It'll be focused on the national presidential race, not on all the other races. It'll be focused on current issues, not all of the issues that you should be thinking about when you're voting. It'll be a very brief survey with a lot left on the table, and yet at the same time, it will not be brief. Sorry. Um, it's going to be a little longer, but it's important and timely, I believe. I also normally work really hard at illustrating things and trying to kind of do things that help you follow along in that way. This time, I'm just going straight through it because there's so much to cover. So here's what we're going to look at. As we consider this this morning, it's in three parts. First is the person. When you're voting, you have to consider the person that you're voting for. Second, the principles. There are some foundational underlying principles that are at play as Christians and as Americans, and when we put those together in our system, things that we have to have in mind, no matter who's on the ballot, no matter what day and age it is that you're voting in, these are principles that play into it. And then third, policies. There are some particular areas that are current and urgent. So when we talk about the person, there's going to be two parts to that. Principles, I'll give you five, and policies, I'll give you five. So just so that you know where we're headed. So let's start right in with the person. What should you consider when you're looking at the candidates that you are voting for or not voting for? There's two things that I want to give you. The first is character. And their character should be measured against the standard of God's word. Uh, an analogy would be, for instance, in the church, when you're looking at elders, 
primarily all the, 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 the qualifications that you are given are character qualifications because character matters in leadership. Character matters. The second thing is history. As you look at this person's track record, what can you expect from them in the future? And by the way, those two things right there are the two things that God is constantly telling us to look at as we trust him. He looks at his own character and his history. He's always saying, here's who I am and here's what I've done. And the same things apply when we're talking about candidates. Now, the issue is, for instance, in our particular election, what do you do when character is deficient on both sides? How do you handle that? Well, you have to ask yourself, can this person change? Uh, the ideal choice would be a person who has good moral character and has a good track record. When the question comes, but what about both of them being questionable in their character, you have a variety of opinions as to how we should handle that. And a little over a week ago, John Piper put out an article basically saying why I can't vote for either one of them. And it comes down to character. And for him, he looks at the unrepentant pride and arrogance and things like that, the brashness of the president. And he, his argument was, is that any better than bad policies on the other side? Now, I really like John Piper. And I've learned a ton from him. He would be one of the people who's most influenced me. Our community group is currently using a study by him. In this case, though, he's wrong, plain and simple. He is making an assumption that he himself does not agree with in order to make the argument that he's making. And the assumption is this. He's assuming that all sins are equal. Now, he doesn't actually believe that. I've heard him say that he does not believe that. But for his argument to stand, that must be true. All sins are not the same. Here's what I mean by that. There's one sense in which all sins are the same, and you can see this, for instance, in James chapter 2. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Every sin, no matter how big or how small, is equally damning. All sins, no matter how big or how small, cause you to be guilty before God, and deserving of death and hell. That doesn't mean that all sins are equal in every sense. For instance, in James, if we were to go to the next chapter, James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And there are a lot of passages that we could go to to see this. Why are teachers judged with greater strictness? Because they have a greater influence. In other words, the more influence that your failings have, the worse it is. This is the principle of influence. How do you apply that when you come to judging, for instance, a presidential candidate and you look at character and you look at policies? Well, character is absolutely important for leadership and it is influential. But character does not carry the same weight of influence as evil policies. In other words, is someone who demonstrates poor character causing me to have bad character? No. 
But when you legislate immorality, that affects everyone. And so there's a difference of influence, and that needs to be taken into account. Um, We'll actually kind of cycle back and hit that topic again, but I want to just keep moving for now. So that's the person, the character, and the history. We need to take both of those things into account. When it comes to principles, the first one I want to mention is government. We just need to understand government from a biblical perspective. First of all, 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17 is relevant, but let me just read these first two verses, verses 13 and 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now notice in there, we're supposed to be submissive to government, but this also lays out what the purpose of government is. It's to punish the evil and reward the good. That's the purpose of government. The nature of government, as we look at Romans 13, Romans, Paul says something very similar, but he says this, verses 3 and 4, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. And catch this, for he is God's servant for your good. He goes on, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. There you can see that the nature of government, as designed by God, is that government is God's servant to implement God's will. It goes right hand in hand with what we saw before of rewarding the good and punishing the evil. But there are limitations to government. First of all, biblically, God gives us three spheres of government. There's the family, there's the church, and there's the civil government. And they each have their own realm that they take care of, and they don't really mix. And no one of those areas should overstep their bounds into the other. We have what we call separation of church and state. There are areas that the state doesn't control. In other words, we as the church have government over certain things that the state doesn't have say-so over. That doesn't mean that there's separation of righteousness and the state. The civil government is still called to do good according to God's standard. Now, in our American system, you can see how this is even somewhat built in. Our American system has a separation of powers both vertically and horizontally. Let me just explain what that means. Horizontally, we have three different branches of government. So we have the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. The legislative is Congress, the Senate, and the House of Representatives. They make the laws. The executive is the president and his cabinet and various agencies that carry out the laws. And then the judicial is the Supreme Court and the federal courts, and they judge based on the laws. So there's a separation of powers so that the powers that each have is not concentrated in one person or group. But there's also a vertical separation of powers in our country. There's the federal government, there's the state government, and there's county and local governments, and they each have their own areas of responsibility. See, there's moral absolutes that are built into the system because both the United States Constitution and the Ohio Constitution recognize the Creator at the outset. In other words, the things that they are putting into place, they see as an outflow of being created by God. 
And so they also take into account original sin. The idea that every one of us is prone to sin and prone even to seek and abuse power. All men are flawed. None rule perfectly. And so they built a separation of powers into the system. Now, the ultimate authority in the American system is not the legislative branch or the executive branch or the judicial branch. The ultimate authority in our system is the Constitution. The President has to obey the Constitution. The Congress has to obey the Constitution. The Supreme Court has to obey the Constitution. And all of that is kind of the system of checks and balances, of separation of powers, but of biblical principles flowing out from God's word, beginning with the recognition that were created by him. Again, we'll come back to some of those things as we continue. A second principle is the principle of citizenship. As Christians, our ultimate citizenship is not here. It's in heaven, Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only are we citizens of heaven first and foremost, but that's where our hope lies. We're waiting for Jesus. That's our ultimate allegiance. But that doesn't mean that we don't have lower or subservient allegiances, temporal allegiances here on earth. It's not wrong to be patriotic. That's a good thing. And as American Christians, when you put those two things together, being a Christian and being an American, we have certain duties and privileges by the fact that we live in this country. Biblically speaking, for instance, when Israel was in exile, Jeremiah 29 verse 7, they're told, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. We are responsible to seek the good of the place that God has put us. That's not neutral. That's a command. We're supposed to do that. We're supposed to seek the good. Proverbs 14 and verse 34 says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Notice that it says to any people. That's not saying sin is a reproach for Israel. It's saying sin is a reproach for any people. It's right for us to seek governance that is righteous and to fight against sin and evil wherever it shows up. Any nation. God's laws are good for any nation. And when a nation enshrines sin in its laws and policies, that's universally a bad thing. We're supposed to fight against evil. Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Evil is to be exposed. And by the way, when you point out the evil, for instance, in a public figure, someone who's running for office, that is not gossip. That's seeking truth. We are to fight against evil. And in our system where we're voting, people need to know the truth in order to know how to vote. With all the warnings in Scripture about truth and error, I don't understand how it is that so many Christians today think that we shouldn't point out when someone's beliefs are at odds with God's word. And when good and evil are embedded in party platforms, voting is a means of fighting evil. Sometimes people say, well, you just shouldn't 
be involved in politics. As Christians, that's not what we're called to. But Christians can righteously serve in civil government. Joseph served in Pharaoh's court and he did God's will there. Daniel served in Babylon in a pagan empire and he exercised God's will in the place that God put him. Politics divide and Christians should be about unity. No, the Bible values truth even above unity. We've seen that already as we've gone through 1 John. You can't have true unity if you reject truth. So being in a position of political influence doesn't mean that you're putting your ultimate hope in politics. Christians can work in politics to promote the good, to promote virtue, to fight against evil, and still place their ultimate hope in Christ. And to a lesser extent, that's what we're doing when we go vote. Next principle I want to mention is freedom. When a nation lives righteously... When, in the language of Proverbs, righteousness exalts a nation, then there's freedom for the people. Again, a lot of times Christians say, well, we shouldn't be fighting for freedom because God oftentimes uses things like persecution and martyrdom. That's true. He does. And if he brings that to our country, he will use that for his glory. But that doesn't mean that we should be indifferent to whether or not we have freedom or persecution. Freedom is a good thing biblically, and so we should be fighting for that. Let me just give you one passage that's a helpful one, I think. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We're supposed to pray for kings and rulers. Why? Toward what end? So that we can live a peaceful and quiet life. So that we can have the freedom to do that. Here's what Spurgeon had to say commenting on those verses. Here, see what we must desire for kings. That God will so turn their hearts and direct them and make use of them that we under them may lead a quiet and peaceable life. Now, our nation recognizes certain inherent freedoms and rights, recognizes, not creates. We noted that the ultimate authority under God is the Constitution. So what does the Constitution say? Where is the power vested? How does it begin? We, the people. The people are the ultimate authority under God. And by the way, all of that is echoed in the Ohio State Constitution as well. So we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, there you hear that the people are the authority. We establish justice, that's rewarding the good and punishing the evil. To ensure domestic tranquility, to live quiet and peaceable lives. Provide for the common defense, prevent and punish the evil. Promote the general welfare, reward and promote the good. And secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, freedom to live a peaceful and quiet life, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. The people establish the authority. 
This is true also when you come even a step back to the Declaration of Independence, which undergirds the Constitution. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Notice, each person has certain rights by virtue of the fact that they have been created by God. Okay? So endowed by their creator. Now, the government is formed to secure those rights. And the declaration then goes on. It's very interesting. It refers to God four times. The first time is here, where he's the creator. He's the source of everything. And then there's three more, and each of those references to God reflect what would become the three branches of government. The laws of nature and nature's God. God is the ultimate lawgiver. That's the legislative branch. A firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. Providence is the guiding or the carrying out, the executing of God's will. That's the executive branch who carries out God's laws. Appealing to the supreme judge of the world. God is the ultimate judge. That's the judicial branch. So you can see, even the way that our country's government was formed was seen by the founders as flowing out of the very identity of God himself. So our government has authority. That authority is delegated from God. The Bible tells us civil government gets its authority from God, and it's God's representative. The Declaration and the Constitution self-consciously ground government's authority there, too. So we have these freedoms and these rights, like life and liberty and property and bearing arms and worship and speech and press and all of those things, and all of those are ultimately grounded in biblical teaching. The next principle is strategy. When you go to vote, you need to vote strategically. First of all, what voting is not. I've already said this, but I want to emphasize it again. As Christians, we do not put our hope in a man or in a government. Psalm 118, 8 and 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. When you go to vote, if all of your hopes are hanging on who you're voting for, then you're missing what the Bible has said about where our hope should be placed. As important as politics and presidents and policies are, do not lose sight of the fact that our ultimate hope is in Jesus Christ. Now, what voting is, as we think strategically? First of all, it is incrementalism. It's step by step, or if we want to put it in the language of what about Bob, baby steps. Okay? It's baby steps. You can't achieve everything at once. Whether you're talking about policies or character, you take what you can get when you can get it, moving in the right direction. C.S. Lewis, in an essay where he's talking about just this idea of general um, doing good and how do we determine uh, when to do good and when we can't do as much good as we'd want and all of those kinds of things, here's what he says. He says, you cannot do simply good to simply man. You must do this or that good 
to this or that man. And if you do this good, you can't at the same time do that. And if you do it to these men, you can't also do it to those. In other words, we're human and we're limited. And so we need to take the steps that we can take when we can take them. Wars are won battle by battle. Character matters, but so does the urgency of the situation. So how do we act strategically? Well, let me just kind of be blunt. In 2016, I did not vote for Trump. And I didn't vote for Clinton either, don't worry. Uh, but in my conscience, I could not justify voting for someone whose character I knew to be deficient, but I didn't have a track record to go on to have any reason to think he was going to do what he said. And so I voted third party. His positions, being pro-life, things like that, seemed to be recent changes. At the same time, I was perfectly happy to agree that other Christians would come to a different conclusion according to their conscience. And if I'm being really honest, on election night, I was glad that he won and Clinton didn't. Because at least it gave us a chance of seeing good things happening. Four years later, the situation is radically different for two reasons. First, the battlefield is different. We'll get to that in a minute. But second, the president now has a three and a half year track record that you can examine. He's done more of what he promised than any president in my lifetime. I don't ignore the character issues, but the situation is now very different. A lot of Christians suggest that Biden's nicer behavior is more worthy of your vote in spite of his policy failings. Let me just share with you what Al Mohler says about that. He says, I cannot accept the argument that a calm man who affirms the dismembering of babies in the womb has a superior character to a man who rants like Genghis Khan but acts to preserve that life. In my ideal world, I would vote for a candidate in whom the personal, the principled, and the practical earn my admiration. I do not live in that world. I live in this world, and I must act accordingly. And so I would suggest we must vote strategically for incremental changes, but without placing our hope in any man. Fifth principle, worldview. In a moment, we're going to look at several policy areas, and we're going to see how the biblical worldview works itself out in those different areas. But before that, I would just like to suggest to you that as you vote, you need to recognize what worldview is at work behind each candidate. Worldviews are important. Listen to what Scripture has to say about this. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The world is attempting to tell you how you should see things, but you are responsible as God's people not to listen to it and instead to see things God's way. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Don't believe everything you hear. Test it according to the measure of God's word. 
2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Before I finish the passage, just note, we walk in the flesh. We live in this world. We don't wage war according to the flesh. We don't go by the no-holds-barred-anything-goes political strategy. We don't do that. But we do live in this world, and so we do vote. But the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They have divine power. So we do things like pray. But that doesn't exclude voting, too. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. There are arguments and opinions that the world is constantly raising and pushing on you that are in opposition to Christ, and you and I are responsible to destroy those. That's the language the Bible uses. Now, there have been major worldview developments in our culture in the last several years. We've looked at much of this over the last couple of months as we looked at the social justice topics. We don't have time to look at this in any detail this morning, but let me just mention one particular contrast that I think is extremely important, and that is truth versus power. Truth versus power. One worldview is based on objective truth and moral standards. And this is the worldview that embraces and builds on our Western heritage because it's largely been formed by biblical Christian values. It's the worldview that says that unborn babies are real human people and have the right to life. It says that we have religious liberty to live according to the absolute dictates of the word of God and according to our conscience without interference not according to the shifting dictates of the government. This is the worldview that says that God created us male and female, and we are not to reject or deny or attempt to change that. It's the worldview that says that marriage is an institution designed by God between one man and one woman, period. It says that law and order are important because God is a God of justice. Our courts are to rule according to the Constitution and not according to the whims of culture or the preferences of the justices. It's the worldview that says that raising children is a task given by God to their parents and that parents should have the freedom to carry this out as they see fit. It's the worldview that says that the environment, the creation, is given to us by God to be stewarded well and used for human flourishing, but not to be worshipped or prioritized over the needs of mankind. It's the worldview that says that truth is important. We have the freedom of speech, to speak the truth in love without fear of retribution, and the freedom to hear truth, not to have it systematically hidden from us because the elites think they know better. It's the worldview that says that we have the right and the responsibility to gather together to worship God publicly and privately. It's a worldview that's based on objective truth because we serve a God of truth whose son told us that he is himself truth. The other worldview is a worldview of power. And this worldview boils down to an exercise of power, seeking more power. I won't go through every contrast in detail, but this worldview has, as its guiding principle, whatever in the moment will promote or preserve my power. 
For the ruling class, your rights and privileges, yours, are tolerable as long as they don't interfere with their power. And they will promote and foment ideas that cause power struggles in an effort to maintain and promote their power. So, for example, racial division is a tool to be magnified and exploited for political gains. Gender issues are magnified because they reject the black and white design of the creator and they blur moral absolutes, leaving room only for subjective preferences to be promoted by raw force. Abortion on demand is a right because otherwise it interferes with my right to live as I see fit, apart from the moral norms and responsibilities given by a creator. And those who disagree must be silenced through outrage and guilt and shame, and if that doesn't work, through the exercise of physical force. And this worldview says that objective truth is neither possible nor desirable. We are in a war of worldviews, and the contrasts are becoming clearer day by day. Now, you might remember, I believe it was when we were talking about social justice issues that I mentioned, there's a shifting of alliances that are happening, or beginning to happen, and that shift is happening along the lines of truth and power. In other words, what should rule the day, truth or power? So when looking at issues, for instance, of social justice, some of the best analysis on those topics that I came across came from atheists. Atheists who care about truth. Atheists who have massive differences with us on many very important issues, but who are committed to open discussion and dialogue on the basis of truth. Specifically, what I'm talking about here is the correspondence theory of truth, which just means truth claims need to, need to actually correspond to a reality in the real world. Truth claims are not simply saying what you wish was true and denying what really is true because you think it shouldn't be true. If you've paid attention to the news, at least from some sources, over the last couple of weeks, you've seen what's gone on with big tech. Exercising power with an utter disregard for truth. And I would suggest to you that this election, possibly more than any other in the past 150 years, is about worldviews. And I'm not the only one that thinks that. One of the atheists that I was mentioning that I've learned a ton from is James Lindsay. I've benefited a lot from his analysis of critical theory and of social justice issues. He's a self-proclaimed left-leaning individual who has never voted for a Republican. This year he's voting for the Republican candidate. Why? Because he's standing against a worldview that sees everything in terms of power and denies the authority of truth. Another atheist that I came across as I studied some of those issues is Peter Boghossian, and I don't know who he's voting for, but he recently wrote an article describing this shift, which he calls Culture War 2.0. And in it, he said this. He said, as a point of contact, I am a non-intersectional liberal atheist. If a conservative Christian believes Jesus walked on water, and believes this either is or is not true for everyone, regardless of race or gender. And if she values discourse and adheres to basic rules of engagement, 
then she is closer to my worldview than an atheist who believes race and gender play a role in determining objective truth and that her opponents should not be allowed to air what she considers harmful views. Did you catch that? Closer to my worldview, he says. That's how big of an issue this truth versus power spectrum is. He says, many conservative Christians understand this intuitively, so do many liberal atheists, and that's what makes this great realignment of Culture War 2.0 so bizarre. It's no longer liberals and atheists versus conservatives and Christians. It's some atheists aligning with some Christians and other atheists aligning with other Christians and each in turn believes that what's at stake is no less than the future of Western civilization. When you enter the voting booth, you have a worldview choice to make. So see to it, Paul says, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. You are responsible before God to not be taken captive by false worldviews. And that includes applying it through your vote. Now, policies. Number one, tyranny. One area of policy is that of government tyranny. Simply put, which administration will seek to free you from tyranny and which will seek to expand government tyranny? We've already seen, 1 Timothy 2, that the ideal, biblically, is that we are free to live peaceable and quiet lives. Many people would say, though, many Christians would say, well, we shouldn't expect the civil government to operate by biblical principles. Let me remind you of what the psalmist says, Psalm 2, verses 9 and 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's addressed not to Israel's king, but to the kings of the earth. The rulers of this world are called to act in wisdom by serving the Lord. So it's right for us as Christians to expect that of them. When God laid out the guidelines for kings in Israel, he said, look, you can choose for yourself a king, but he should not be a foreigner. He should not accumulate horses or wives or silver and gold, and he should write out for himself by hand a copy of God's law, and he should read it regularly so that he learns to fear God and that he learns to rule from that wisdom. So what do we do when the government doesn't act righteously? What are Christians to do when the government becomes oppressive and tyrannical? And if you don't think that's a current issue, wake up. We are to be good citizens. We are to support government and be submissive to a point. But when the government oversteps its God-given authority, we are called to resist. And a vote against tyranny is one small way of resisting. We may be called to resist in much more dramatic ways. Sometimes Christians say things like, well, look, you shouldn't resist. I mean, people were martyred for their faith. Why were they martyred? Not because they went along with the empire, but because they resisted. There's a rich heritage of Protestant resistance theory, resisting the government when it becomes tyrannical. So Martin Luther, living in the Holy Roman Empire, said that since government there was supposed to be a limited government, it was biblically permissible for princes to resist the emperor on behalf of their people. 
John Calvin looked at the book of Exodus and he said, look, when God gave the covenant to his people, he asked them three times if they agreed with it before he ratified it. And so Calvin said, if God asks consent, then all government is based on the consent of the governed and is a covenant between the ruler and the people. That's why our Declaration of Independence says governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. In Scotland, George Buchanan recognized that since political power is vested in the people, then the people, and not just their princes, have the right and the duty to resist when the ultimate earthly authority becomes tyrannical. Also in Scotland, in his influential work, Lex Rex, the law of the king or the law and the king, Samuel Rutherford argued that authority is given by God to the people. And political philosopher John Locke, who was very influential for the American founding fathers, looked back to medieval theologians who recognized that there are certain rights that are what he called pre-political. In other words, unalienable rights like life and liberty and property. They are given by God and therefore they are not subject to human government. In the 17th and 18th centuries, the predominant worldview was the Christian one, which recognized liberty not as the right to do anything you want, but the right to pursue what is virtuous, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Again, John Locke saw that those things were pre-political. They belonged to each person before the government ever came into existence. And since that's the case, the purpose of government was then to secure those rights and protect them. And that sounds pretty similar to the biblical idea of promoting the good and punishing the evil. So our declaration reads that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. And that's the road that led the American colonists, many ministers among them, to lay out their reasons for declaring independence. We don't have time this morning to consider that history. But just consider these words from Thomas Jefferson, our third president. These are words that you will find on the Jefferson Memorial in Washington. He was, regardless of his personal spiritual condition, profoundly shaped by the word of God and the Christian worldview. He said this, God who gave us life gave us liberty at the same time. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed their only sure basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that those liberties are the gift of God? In our nation, we are heading increasingly toward the criminalization of historic Christianity. Things which God said that we should do are being outlawed or opposed by those in power, and things which God said we should not do are being approved of or permitted. The prophet Isaiah said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And at the end of Romans 1, Paul describes the wickedness of men who, quote, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Are we as Christians ready to stand for biblical truth? Are we ready to resist a government that promotes evil? 
very small, simple first step is your vote. Several weeks ago, we saw Paul's resistance to the government authorities in Philippi. That was in Acts 16. Why we Christians think that we must simply go along with the government when it oversteps its authority is beyond me. Paul says in Romans 13 to submit to the governing authorities, but this is the same guy who ran away from those government authorities when they were trying to capture him, who publicly embarrassed them in Philippi when they overstepped their authority. So as you vote, consider which choice is one that will seek to free you from tyranny and which one will expand government tyranny. Much more briefly now, justice. Will you vote for biblical justice or social justice? Now, we spent several weeks on social justice, so I'm not going to do that again now. I'm just going to remind you that social justice, intersectionality, critical race theory are all about power, not justice. They're about partiality and division. Leviticus 19 says this, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Being partial to someone because they're poor or because of skin color or because of anything else flies in the face of God's law. It is unjust. God highly values justice and justices, judges, are held to a high standard. In the instructions for judges in Deuteronomy chapter 25, it says this, you shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Why is that important in a presidential election? Well, not only does the president lead the executive branch in pursuit of justice, but in our American system, the president names judges and justices for the federal court system and the Supreme Court. What kind of judges will he name? Judges who believe in objective truth and objective laws? Or judges who legislate from the bench, who see the Constitution as malleable, to be bent to the changing whims of the culture, finding rights in the law, that the founders would have seen as sins and vices. Will you vote for biblical justice or social justice? Globalism. This is a huge policy area. Are we citizens of the United States or are we citizens of the world? There are two very different visions for the future at work in our country. But is one of those visions preferable from a biblical standpoint? Acts 17.26, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. The origin of nations goes back to Genesis. It comes about by God's will. Nations and borders are good things. The borders of nations mark the boundaries of their laws. Those principles you see in Scripture, for instance, we're told as Christians that we're to do good to all, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. In other words, those who are closest to you in your sphere of influence, your relationships, that's who your priority is on. The Bible says that a man who doesn't provide for his family is uh, in violation of God's law. 
Not a man who doesn't provide for everyone else's family, but a man who doesn't provide for his own family. We have spheres of responsibility. And the same thing is true for a nation. However, there's a huge push right now for open borders, or what is called an open society. And you'll hear world leaders talking about things like the dangers of nationalism or populism. When you hear that, what they are advocating is globalism. If you hear someone say, America first, and in your mind you think, well, that's not very Christian, then you've been affected by globalism. This is the difference of an open society and a closed society. And the idea behind an open society is that laws are diminished, that standards are kind of done away with, and that we have much more of a universalistic approach to things. Those who are advocates of this kind of open society would be the George Soroses of the world and the Clintons and the Obamas and those who would say that we need to break down the tribal and hierarchical structures and national borders in order to become open societies. So for instance, that's why you were told that it takes a village to raise a child because we want to break down the family structure and spread that out over the village or the community. Traditions, faith systems, patriotism, all of those things would need to be revised or watered down or removed. And every nation state participate in this overall global entity. Nations should give up their sovereignty to be ruled by the elite rulers of the open society, a kind of supranationalism. That's the goal for the open society. But then you have no say in who's ruling. And the government has been removed from the people, the biblical principle that we've seen. And the nationalistic glue that holds us together, even those Judeo-Christian heritage elements that have founded our country are done away with. Now, currently, there's a big European backlash going on to the open society efforts in Europe. In the USA, the things that hold the biggest barrier or conflict or obstacle for those who advocate open societies are things like the Constitution and the Christian faith. So the open society advocates have diversified into hundreds of different organizations under the banner of social justice to advance these kinds of ideas. They want to convince everyone that their lot in life is due to the oppressor, White privilege echoed all over er different areas of society. Forced ethnic and sexist equity across all levels of government. Why? Because when you do those things, you break down society into all these different factions and groups that all are in conflict with each other. And you do away with the moral absolutes and the standards and it becomes much easier to gain power over the group. They're doing it through top-down legislation, through bottom-up community organization and protests, and inside out through the academy and the media. Now, where does that show up in policies? Well, it shows up in things like immigration and border walls. Is it right to have a wall? Is it right to have immigration policies? Or citizenship. You know, the Bible talks about welcoming the foreigner but it also talks about assimilating them to Israel's culture and to their worship and to their worldview. And so foreigners could become a vital part of Israel. 
if they would assimilate. Gender ideologies, the biological, cultural, common sense understandings of all of those limitations being broken down, eliminating all the boundaries and the norms and the standards. And this goes on and on. God gives rulers of nations the responsibility to care for their people. That's part of his design. The economy, and this is interrelated here with globalism, what's a biblical perspective on that? Let me just give you three things. First of all, on taxation. Should we want higher taxes or lower taxes? Maybe that sounds like a dumb question, but for a lot of people it's not. First Samuel 8, as Samuel gives warnings about kings, he says, when you put a king in place, he will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. Samuel says to the people of Israel, you're welcome, according to what God has said, to take a king, but recognize we re you're doing this in rejection of him. You're going to take a human king unto yourself and here's how bad it's going to get. This king is going to go so far as to take 10% of your income in taxes. Where are we as a nation? Samuel's point was, here you have human government claiming for itself as much as God himself requires. Private property, Exodus 20, 15, you shall not steal. Why can't we steal? Because God recognizes private property ownership. It's an extension of God's value on human life. God values human life because humans are created in the image of God. And so your lifespan is valuable. The time you spend is valuable. And so when you spend time, and in that time you earn money, and then you spend it on something and you buy it, that private property is a reflection of the time of your life that you've spent. And so the, the, the right to private property, the value of that flows out of God valuing human life in the first place. There's a lot of calls for socialism today. Socialism is tyranny and it is theft. The current guise in which it is arriving is something called the Great Reset. There will be conspiracy videos that mention it. Ignore those. But if you want to look into it, it's not a hidden thing. This is not some like secretive thing that's out there. Time Magazine just dedicated an entire issue to the Great Reset. It is being openly advocated by groups like the World Economic Forum, so Klaus Schwab, the president of that, George Soros, International Monetary Fund, the United Nations, Prince Charles, Bill Gates, and others. They just had a conference to talk about this not long ago. The Great Reset is using the coronavirus pandemic as an opportunity to reset the global economy according to their ideals. Meaning they can, for instance, put in place environmental demands on any loans or use of money. So it's got to be a green recovery. And then those who go along with it are rewarded financially. Those who are considered to not add value are excluded from the economy. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to think who's going to be excluded in a short amount of time 
if that continues. There's a lot there. I'm going I'm to leave it to you to look into that more. Let me just continue. The last thing on economy is this. Restitution. Ephesians 4.28. Not reparations, restitution. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This has bearing on things like prison reform. We have prisons loaded with people who are there for years and years and years for things like a minor drug offense. That's not God's design for how we deal with people who commit crimes. There should be a means of restoring people to society and becoming productive members of society. And so ask yourself, as you look at administrations and systems, which one is actually moving people out of poverty? The final principle I want to give you is life, or the final policy. All life matters because we were created by God in his image, Genesis 1. We are to choose actions and practices and policies that honor life. Deuteronomy 30, I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. And worldview matters. Numbers can easily just kind of fly past you. So listen, totalitarian governments, Marxism and its associates, in the 20th century brought about over 100 million deaths. In our country, abortion has taken a terrible toll. Over 58 million. Now, like I said, the numbers are hard to kind of get your mind around. So I would like you to listen to that number. What you're about to hear are the sounds of metal BB striking the side of a tin can. For every BB that strikes, it represents 10,000 lives lost in the wars of America's past. 10,000 lives for every BB. This is the reality of what is occurring in your country. The American Revolution. The Civil War. World War One. World War Two. The Korean conflict. The conflict in Vietnam. September 11th and the war on terror. Since 1973, the war on the unborn child.
that video is 10 years old, you can add another 10 million. That matters when you vote. One candidate says that we have, quote, a constitutional right to an abortion, end quote. That he supports abortion, quote, under any circumstance, and that he will restore federal funding of Planned Parenthood. The other candidate has ended funding for pro-abortion groups, has appointed pro-life judges, three to the Supreme Court and hundreds of federal judges, has allowed states to end Planned Parenthood funding, has defunded the United Nations Population Fund, has required health insurance companies to reveal plans that cover abortion, has protected groups like the Little Sisters of the Poor from having to provide for abortifacient drugs, has established a division of the Office of Civil Rights which works to pr protect healthcare workers who don't want to participate in abortions, has redefined family planning to exclude abortion, has ended taxpayer-funded research using the bodies of aborted babies, has clarified that abortion is not a civil right, was the first president to attend and address the March for Life, and signed an executive order protecting infants born alive. I'm sure you can tell where I stand. I really do mean when I say that you should vote according to your conscience. I will go so far as to say, no Christian should vote for the Democratic Party platform. It is absolutely and utterly inconsistent with scripture. Now whether you choose to vote for Republican, or you choose to write somebody in, or some third party, or you choose to abstain, whatever your conscience leads you to do is between you and the word of God and God himself. But I believe these are things that are absolutely important for us to consider when we look at voting. I want to return to 1 Timothy 2 as we close. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Politics is important. If it wasn't, I wouldn't have spent time on it this morning. Politics is an arena of life that is ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ, and so what he has to say about it matters. But let me finish by saying this. As we pray for our leaders, as we pray about an election, the most important thing that you and I can remember is that our ultimate hope is not in any candidate. Our ultimate hope is in Jesus Christ. He will win the war. We already know the outcome. He is the Lord. He calls us to be loyal to him. Not only that, but our hope in terms of our salvation does not rest in politics, but our hope of salvation rests on Christ. Join me in prayer. Lord, I pray that, first of all, your will would be done regarding the rulers, the leaders, the government in our country, in our state, in our local areas. 
We want to see righteousness because we recognize that you've said righteousness exalts the nation. We want to see freedom because when rulers do what they're supposed to do, then Christians are able to live peaceful and quiet lives. And so we pray for that. And yet we recognize that sometimes your will is that something else happens. And if that's what happens, then I pray that you enable us to live faithfully and to proclaim you and to have a strong witness, no matter who's in office. Please give us the right amount of concern about what happens in our government and strengthen our hearts to have our ultimate allegiance and hope be set on you. We pray this in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.